Um, we're going to be going back, getting back into Genesis. Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to be today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it should be one around you in the chairs. We're going to actually do 29 and a lot of 30. And so two chapters today. We're going to be on page 23 in those black Bibles. So if you would, please stand as we read God's word together. We are just going to actually read uh, chapter 29 verses 1 through 30. Um, because uh, chapter 30 is just basically about baby wars, and but we'll, we'll touch base on that. Uh, here we go, verse 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of his people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and with all the flocks were gathered there. And the shepherds would roll a stone from the mouth and the well in the water of the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we came from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahar? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, it is well with him. And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Why are the sheep and go pasture them? But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then the water, the sheep. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sisters, he ran also to meet and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone of my flesh. He stayed with him a month. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, you shall therefore serve me for nothing. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Then Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. They seemed to be but only a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, and my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female slave Zappil to his daughter Leah to be servant. And then in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said, to Laban, what is this that you've done? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will ask you to give, and, and we'll give you the other in return, <clears throat> serving me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave the daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave a female servant, Bilhah, to daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. 
And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Leah for another seven years. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Each, each week we, we say that because we are thankful for your word. It informs us of your passion, your desire for your people. It informs us of the, the story of redemption that we saw was in the beginning of Genesis 1-1 and will be complete in the end of Revelation where you are moving and shaping and orchestrating events in individuals' lives and nations' lives to bring about your redemption. And in that, rejoice. Lord, in, this, in these two chapters and what we've seen over the previous chapters is we've seen your servants, your, your patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their families, and the dysfunction that's in them. And yet we see your faithfulness. And so, Lord, let that ring true in our lives, in the dysfunction and the rebellion of our own hearts, that we see your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy. Not because if there's anything that we've merited, but because you are gracious and because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection. So, Lord, give us eyes to see what you'd have from this passage today and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. So yeah, we are just going to jump right into it. I mean, last week we had uh, an awesome Easter weekend. I mean, this place was packed out, it was jammed, worship, prayer, was it's just an incredible time. It's the pinnacle of the Christian calendar, and, and by God's grace, He was, again, faithful to His Word and His promises to us here at the cross, and we had a great weekend. And, and now we're going to jump back into Genesis. We go through books of the Bible here, if you're visiting with us, um, and now we're in the book of Genesis, and we're going to pick that up, and we're just going to jump right into it. In this passage, we are going to see the faithfulness of the Lord in Jacob's life. As he, the Lord, works his plan of redemption through Jacob, and even in Jacob's mistakes. And it will seem very familiar to us, because sometimes the Lord will work exactly in our lives, as he does in this story, as he does in Jacob's life, as he does in Leah's life, as he does in Rachel's life. And we're going to see this play out in three scenes, three scenes. The first scene will be the well, the second scene will be the wedding, and the third scene will be the wrangling, the wrangling. So let's look at the well. First scene, Genesis 29, verses 1 through 12. Again, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of his people of the east. And as they looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep laying beside it. For out of the well, the flocks were watered. So we see that Jacob finally kind of hits his destination, this this 500-mile journey, if you've been following along with us. He finally gets there. He's been by himself, he's been on this pilgrimage by himself to find a wife, but also fleeing his brother Esau. And we see he comes to this well. He looks for a well. Why? Well, because wells were very valuable back then, especially in small communities like this. Uh, this was kind of like the life source of these communities. This was also the place that would be a very popular place, would be like kind of the social hub. The ladies would come in the morning to gather the water. The shepherds would come around here and, and again, water their sheep. So this was a very social place. If you wanted to find someone, uh, this is where you would go. You would go to the well. And so Jacob, again, looking for his wife, was sent on this trip to, to go find Laban, his mother's brother, to, at this place called Haran. He, he gets there, he goes to the well, and he asks this question. Hey, where are you guys from? And they said, well, we're from Haran. And he said, well, do you know Laban? And they said, we do. And then he points out Laban's daughter coming to Rachel. The other thing that we want to notice about this well is we've been traveling with us this This should remind us of another story. It seems like in the Bible that if you want to find a wife, you also go to a well. As we saw 
with uh, Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Remember, he goes to a well and he finds Rebekah there. And so that's just maybe a little secondary thing we can take away. If you're single in here and maybe struggling to find that spouse right now, well, maybe you just need to go out east to the plains, right? Find a well, pray, and see what the Lord does, right? You never know what he might do. Or you can just go to farmersonly.com and save some time, and that'll catch your ways, right? But anyways, Jacob goes to this well. He sees some shepherds there. He asks this question, and he gets good news. He's one in, he, in Haran. Two, he, they know who Laban is. And then three, he sees this beautiful young lady, Laban's daughter, coming to him. And now in the coming verses, what we see is Jacob falls head over heels for Rachel because she is extremely, extremely beautiful, the Scripture says. And it's love at first sight for him. And here's the thing. Jacob will do anything to capture her love, to capture her heart, to get her to marry him. And what we see over the next several years of Jacob's life is, is, uh, is Rachel's rule and, and reign over his heart. He will do anything for her. And actually, he, um, actually she becomes a functional savior for Jacob. That's what we're going to see throughout this passage. Keep those words in mind. Functional saviors. Because we're going to see it throughout these next couple of verses. In verses 6 through 8, Jacob sees again Rachel coming. And he basically tells the other, the other shepherds, hey, it's time for you guys to leave. I, I want to spend some time with this young lady. I want some one-on-one time with this young lady. So, so it's not time for you guys to have your sheep here. Go take them out the field and pasture them. And the guy says, like, sorry, bro, we're not going anywhere until we get all the sheep here to then roll away the stone and wire the sheep. And next we see Jacob kind of probably frustrated. So he wants to get the process going to get these other shepherd sheep watered and get out of there so he can spend time with Rachel. Remember, he's 70 years old, right? 70 plus years old. He just had this 500-mile journey, and this stone that, that kind of plugs up the well is heavy. Usually it takes a couple shepherds or a couple animals even to move this stone. But what does Jacob do? He goes and shows off for Rachel. He goes and it says he moves the stone himself. Look at verse 10. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and wired the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Again, the stone would be difficult to move, but all of a sudden, Laban, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Jacob has this desire to show off. And he moves the stone, hoping that Rachel will notice him. Now remember, we got to remember what Jacob was, who Jacob was. Remember, last time before we saw Jacob, we remember he was, he was kind of a homebody. He was kind of a mama's boy. He's 70 years old. He's still living in his, with his mama in his basement, right? And he doesn't seem real motivated to do anything. 70 years old, still living at home. But all of a sudden, he's got motivation. All of a sudden, he's got incentive. And what brings about that incentive? What ignites his motivation? A woman. And not just any woman, a beautiful woman. Imagine that, right? A guy getting it all together for a woman, right? Man, you you might think, man, these ancient people are so primitive, right? That would would never happen in today's day and age. We're so far more sophisticated, right? That would never happen now, a man get it together for a woman. But we see that's just exactly the same thing that happens today. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel. Now, this is not a romantic kiss. It's kind of a greeting, especially with family. We'll see it later on with Laban. But then he wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman, that Rachel and Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So after the, uh, after the superhero moment for, for Jacob, right, mustering up the strength, move away the stone, he kind of falls back into character, and he weeps like a little baby, right? 
He's a little bit more in touch with his feelings and emotions. And you can understand a little bit why, right? Again, he's on this journey. He's been set on this journey to find a wife. And he's 500 miles. He's tired, exhausted. And he sees that his prayers were answered with Rachel. Can you imagine Rachel's response? See the superhuman strength from the 70-year-old man. Kisses her on the face. Tells her all this stuff. And then just starts to weep like a baby. What would you do? Do what she did. She runs to her father Laban and shares the news. There's just one thing I want to point out right here is that in all these verses, and this is kind of the main theme and main thread throughout this story, is that we don't see the Lord's name mentioned much, in particular when it comes to Jacob. Remember last time we saw Jacob, he comes to saving faith with that dream. Uh, But here we we just see Jacob moving and acting on his flesh because he sees a beautiful woman. But we do see the Lord's hand of providence in working and orchestrating this meeting and really beginning to fulfill all of his promises that he made to Jacob. Again, we should be reminded of Genesis 28 where, where, where Jacob has these promises from the Lord. The Lord promises Jacob this. He says this in Genesis 28, 13. I will give you offspring like the dust of the earth. At this point, Jacob didn't even have a wife. He was by himself alone. And he said, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back into this land, and I will not forsake you. And so we see the Lord directing, again, his story of redemption through Jacob, despite Jacob's disobedience, his sin, his flesh getting him uh, the best of him with regards to, to Rachel, and all the other poor decisions that he will make as, he, as the story goes on. Because he didn't first seek the Lord. He didn't pray. He didn't cast lots. When we think of Abraham, when he sent his servant uh, to find a wife for Isaac, remember his servant sought the Lord, prayed, cast lots, threw out a fleece, was seeking the Lord. Is this the woman? Jacob just says, she's hot. She's the woman. She must be the woman, right? But we see the Lord again honoring and working through Jacob's dysfunction. And what that should do is that should bring you and I comfort this morning. Because we are, can see ourselves in Jacob. We can see our passions kind of overtake us sometimes when we see something and instead of praying and asking and seeking the Lord, whether it's a spouse, a job, whatever it may be, we can just by impulse react and go after it because it looks good. And it might be of the Lord, it might not be of the Lord. But what we always know is that the Lord is working His promises and His plan of redemption through you and me. Even when we stray, even when we have to something, look to something else as our functional Savior, God still gives us grace. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we see we go from the well, then we go to the wedding in Genesis 29, 13 through 30. See, Jacob now has been hanging out with Laban for about a month, for about a month. And in verse 13, we see that Jacob tells Laban everything. And we might put everything in quotes because the question might be, did he really tell him everything? Did he really tell him everything? Or did he just tell him, I'm the son from Isaac who I received the blessing? I'm going to be the new leader of this covenant family. Or did he tell him, I am the younger brother who deceived my older brother and stole his blessing? What did he tell him? We're not exactly sure, but you see Laban's response. Surely you are of my bone and my flesh. And I think it's even more than being saying we're cut from the same cloth. We're, We're the family. I think Laban might even be saying that there's something deeper here. You're a deceiver and I'm a deceiver. And I believe at this point, Laban has put enough pieces together to deceive and take advantage of Jacob. He knows that Jacob is on a journey to look for a wife, and he knows he's infatuated with his daughter. Therefore, he sets the trap in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, 
Should you therefore serve me for nothing? What shall I pay you, Laban asked. So it seems like Jacob has been working, laboring for Laban for about a month, and he hasn't asked for anything. Well, Laban says, well, hey, that's not right. So, hey, what do you want? And then right in here in verses 17 to 18, Moses introduced us to the second oldest daughter, Leah. So now we have the four characters that will take over the next couple chapters. We have Laban, we have Jacob, we have Leah, and we have Rachel. And again, we see a contrast. Just like we saw with Jacob and Esau, we see a contrast here with Leah and Rachel. It said that Leah's eyes were weak. What does that mean? Well, that's just a kind way of the, of the Bible saying that she wasn't very beautiful, right? She wasn't very beautiful. Maybe she was cross-eyed. Maybe she had a real bad lazy eye. Maybe she looked like Alistair Mad-Eye Moody from Harry Potter, you know, that guy, that eyeball just kind of wiggles around. Who knows? The point is, she's no Rachel. Rachel is stunningly beautiful. Leah is not. And so Jacob answers Laban and he puts all of his cards on the table. Jacob would not be a very good negotiator or poker player. In verse 18, it says, because of Jacob, Jacob loved Rachel. So because of this motivation, he says this, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, is it better that I give you to her than that I should give you to any other man? Stay with me. Work with me for the next seven years. That price that Jacob offers was double kind of the rate going if you wanted to get married. If you wanted to pay, pay the bride price, you would go to a, uh, the, the man would go to the family and say, hey, this is what I paid. Well, the going price at that point was about three years' wages. And here, Jacob, because he's infatuated, he's in love, head over ears for Rachel, he offers her, offers Laban double. He says, I will work for you seven years. And we get this, right, men? Uh, I, I know when I'm, I'm thinking about this and, and when I first saw Rita and we started dating and stuff, it's like, man, I would do anything for this woman. All the things that men will do when they're in love. So we see Jacob just makes this incredible offer because he wants to make sure that Laban says yes. So Laban agrees. Now, verse 20. This is one of the most romantic verses in all the Scripture, men. Um, that's translation for you guys to memorize this verse, write it down for your anniversary coming up, all right? Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Right? Ladies, go ahead. Ah, right? And it really is. It's a beautiful passage. And, and, I, and, I, and I believe it. it, it when, when, when you, as a man, find your wife, your spouse, and, and your love, it's like, yes, I will do anything for her. It's a beautiful passage. And I think love is the, the key word in verse 20. And the story reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter on love. Because what is the first characteristic in verse 13 that love is what? Love is patient. Love is patient. And here we see that modeled. Here's a man who commits seven years for a woman. Seven years he serves. Seven years he's going to give his life up for this woman. It's almost unheard of today. With everything being so quick and active, it's like seven years he's going to labor. Ladies, let me ask you a question. Would you be interested in a man who says, hey, I'm going to lay down my life for seven years to work for you, to serve you, actually become this man's slave to prove my love, faithfulness, and commitment to you? That's how much I love you? Ladies, are you going to, are you going to live, want a man like that? Absolutely you are. And for the singles in here, let me just, this is a great little nugget of wisdom right here. Love is patient. 
Love is patient. I, I remember back in the days, I mean, we, we all fall in this temptation. It's like, man, I'm single. I got to get married. I got to find my husband. We, we have our friends and maybe family members. <clears throat> and it seems like everyone in our friend group is getting married. But remember, love is patient. God has his timing for you. Love is patient. So be patient with love. Be, be patient with looking for a spouse. Be, be patient for marriage. If you have that desire, the Lord will bring it about. Because it's a good desire. Getting married is a good desire. Finding your spouse in love is a good desire. But it can also have its difficulties. I came across this great, great sentence. Uh, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to put it into my, uh, my counseling, premarital um, counseling the sessions. It says this. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Right? Keep your eyes open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Why? What, what, what does that mean? It means this. In the, in the dating process, when you, when you find that someone that, hey, maybe this person could be a candidate, you take the time to get to know them in all their glory and all their splendor, both good and bad. You, you, you want to spend time. You want to see certain circumstances come up to see how people respond, uh, where they're strong, where their character's strong. Maybe they, they might have character flaws. What are their passions? What makes this person tick? You, you want to be able to see so you know what you're getting into, so to speak. And so in that process of before marriage, keep your eyes open, wide open. And then when you commit and when you say, I do, when you put a, put a ring on each other's finger, then you keep your eyes half shut. What does that mean? That means don't be surprised if you've done your due diligence before and you kept your eyes open. Don't get all worked up when that person does certain things that you've seen them do for the previous three years. Don't get all worked up. Keep your eyes half shut because that's the way they were back then. And just because you put a ring on it doesn't matter. It's going to change them to different characteristics. This, uh, I think of a silly way this happens with, with Rita and I when we first uh, got married. When I first met Rita, I knew she liked things clean. And, and she liked things a certain way. She, she had a family members, and her mom in particular, who was very cleanly. You, get, you had your pretty towels over here. And if you wanted to use towels after the shower, they were underneath the sink, you know. So it was just very neat. Never a particle of dust anywhere on the, in the kit, you know. And so I knew this was Rita's background. For me, I'm not the most cleanliest guy. In my dorm, I used to wash my baseball socks in my sink and just hang them up there around the, around the sink, right? And so we're, we're two different people. And, and I knew that Rita, she, she loved to clean one because she liked things clean. But two, it, it just also, it helps her relieve stress. That's what she does when she kind of gets stressed. She just goes around and cleans. And so in the beginning of our marriage, she would just go around and clean and clean. And I try to have conversations with her and I try to engage with her, but she was just in clean mode, right? And we, it just, it just didn't go. So I used to get so frustrated with her. I'm like, chill. My, the house looks good. Just relax. Let's talk. Let's watch a movie. She's like, no, I got I got to clean. And it, it, it goes along with this principle. I knew that about her. So now when, when she gets in cleaning mode, I mean, even the kids know it now. It's like, oh, mom's in cleaning mode. Let her go. You know, she's going. And it's like, yeah. And we don't get us all worked up. And it, it, it's just part. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. So late people in here, singles and married people, love is patient. Here we see Jacob waited seven years. And then the wedding comes. Or we might call it the bait and switch wedding. The deceiver, Jacob, gets deceived. Verse 21, he works his seven years. He goes into Laban and says, hey, 
I want to get married now. I, I serve my time and I want to enjoy all the benefits of marriage. In verse 22, David says, you bet. Throws a party. Invites everyone in the community. The food, the drinking, the dancing, the joy. And then the wedding. Jacob comes to consummate the wedding, the marriage with Rachel. He doesn't know that Laban switched out his daughters because the combination of the bride that would be totally veiled from head to toe, you wouldn't be able to to see the bride, the darkness in the room, the, the wine from the party, and also the fact that Jacob didn't have any family around, so he didn't have any female uh, family members to help, you know, see that Rachel was getting ready, was getting ready, and she was the one behind the veil. He didn't have any of this. It just all allowed Laban to pull off one of the most devastating deceptions in all the Scripture. And so that night goes. Jacob comes into again his wife, thinks it's Rachel, and then in verse twenty-five, he's stunned. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Can you imagine rolling over expecting to see the love of your life and all of her beauty? And as you roll over, you see her sister looking at you cross-eyed, right? (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) So what does Jacob do? Jacob freaks out. He runs to Laban. What have you done to me? You deceived me. The same words that Jacob's brother Esau said when Jacob did this to Esau. Laban, you can see him sitting there drinking his wine, smoking his stogie, thinking to himself, man, I love it when a plan comes together. You know? Says this in 26, Genesis 29, 26. Laban says, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And what is that? That is a knife. That's a dagger to Jacob's heart. Jacob's heart must have sank to the pit of his stomach because then at that moment he understood the Lord just gave him, just let him reap what he sowed earlier with his brother, deceiving his father and his brother. See, not only is it not so done in our country, But it was the same way. It's not so done in Jacob's country. Jacob was did the very same thing. He used deception to get what he wanted. Verse 27, Laban makes Jacob another offer. He said, hey, you just work another seven weeks. In this context, weeks means years. So another seven years, and then I'll give you my daughter, Jacob. So Jacob worked another seven years for Rachel. And so if you're keeping track, that's 14 years that he waited for the love of his life, love is patient. And what we see here again is we talked about Jacob's functional savior, Rachel, in verse 29, in Genesis 29. Every decision he's making, his whole life is wrapped up in her. If when and only he can get her as his wife, then he will be fulfilled. Everything will be okay. Instead of seeking the Lord through prayer and asking for wisdom and guidance, he just plows along letting his flesh dictate his choices And he gets deceived. Now, how many of us do the same thing in here? How many of us do the same thing? We we find our functional saviors in other things beside the Lord. Oh, if I can only get this or that, then my life will be complete. And we make all of our decisions around that one thing and not the Lord. You see, this is what we see happen to Jacob. 
And when we, we go after these things, when we say, man, if I get this, then my identity, my worth, my fulfillment will be complete. Whether it's a girl, whether it's a job, whether it's some kind of success. But then when we get up in the morning and we roll over, we don't see Rachel, we see Leah. In other words, it doesn't provide the return on investment it promised us. We think, oh, if I only get that one thing, then I will be totally fulfilled. But we find out when the morning is, that's not it. The only thing that can fulfill us is the Lord. Because that is his role. That is his job. Not some things. The Lord lets Jacob reap what he sows. And sometimes he lets us reap what we sow. And he gives us a dose of our own medicine to point out some of our functional saviors that we might have. And the sole purpose is that it brings us back to him. And that's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. We're going to see this play out in Leah and Rachel's life in the following verses. So let's keep on going. Third, the wrangling, the wrangling. In Genesis 29, 31 through 30, 24. And really, this section of Scripture, we see two sisters competing, wrangling against each other. And it's crazy dysfunction. I mean, it's like baby wars. But catch the sin beneath the sin. See Leah and Rachel's functional Savior and see if you can relate to them. First, we see Leah in Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And again, here we see the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord looking out for those that are marginalized, those that are outsiders. He extends his grace and mercy to Leah. Because Jacob loves Rachel. He has eyes for Rachel, not Leah. He just has to put up with her because he's been tricked. And so the Lord opens up Leah's womb and he gives her a son, Reuben. But notice what Leah says. Verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which means, behold, a son. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, look at this reason, for now my husband will love me. How sad is that? For now my husband will love me. She wants her husband's love. If only Jacob would love her. I mean, think about her growing up, Leah. I mean, all of her life, again, she's been on the outcast. Maybe she's been made fun of because of her eyes, because of her looks. She never got attention from the boys. And now she's married and she doesn't even have attention from her own husband. Her own husband doesn't love her. She's longing for attention. She's longing for affection. She's longing for love. And maybe a son will do that. Behold, a son, because we know as we've been following through Genesis, and when a wife gave birth to a son, a firstborn, that was, the, that was it. That's how women found their identity, their worth back then is bearing sons. And she does that. But does it work? Mm -mm. She goes on to have a second son, Simeon. Simeon means heard. Verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he gave me this one too. Then it, and then she's blessed again with a third son. Again, she conceives. She gives birth to a third son. Verse 34, now at last, third son. At last, he will come attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Now Jacob will love me. Now, now, now he'll see me. Now he hears me. Now he's going to be attached to me because Levi means attached. Man, do you see her functional savior get any clearer? She's crying out for love. She's crying out for acceptance through the name of her own children. She's crying out. One commentator put it simply like this. 
The story demonstrates the craving of human beings' love and recognition. Finally, we get to her fourth son, and she now starts to take her eyes off her functional Savior, and she puts her eyes on the true Savior, the one that will bring her fulfillment, the one that will bring her identity. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, this time, this time I will, what? Praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and Judah's name means praise. Then she ceased to bear children, at least for a while. Finally, Leah gets, it, I mean, Leah gets it. She gets her eyes off of her functional savior, Jacob, to bring her fulfillment by being loved. And she looks to the one that truly loves her. As she is, the Lord God. Jacob cannot fulfill her deepest longing as a husband, but the Lord can. And what's interesting is we see, we see Leah grow in this. She, she turns her eyes. She grows. It's like, a, it's like a sanctification moment. It's like, yes, Leah, you get it. You finally get it. But we see later on in Genesis chapter 30, verse 20, she actually will have two more kids. And it says after her sixth son, she, she goes back into desiring affection for her love. She goes, surely now my husband will look upon me. So she has this up and down life, right? And that's the process of sanctification in all of our lives. There's times where we have our functional Savior. We see that. We're like, oh man, that's not good. I'm worshiping these things that aren't meant to be worshiped. I need to turn my focus and attention to the Lord. And we do that. But then all of a sudden we, we, we see ourselves a month later, a year later. We go back to those functional Saviors. And we have this, we're getting back and forth, this tossing and turning back and forth. And so anyone in here can relate to Leah? Can anyone in here relate to Leah? You just want to be loved and noticed. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's something. And then you think, man, only if that happens, then, then my life will be complete. I think we all can relate with Leah at some level. And here's the thing. First and foremost, um, it's good. It's biblical to, to look for your, to your spouse for love, to look to your spouse for attention, to look for your spouse for affirmation. That's good. That's biblical. And, and, and maybe one of the, the things in here, man, is, is for us to wake up and say, hey, it, it, is, is my wife crying out where she's not feeling loved? She, she wants that attention and, and, and that affirmation. And, and, and maybe we're not doing a good job loving our, our, our wives. And, and maybe it's reverse. It could be wives and, and husbands as well. And so maybe this is a good opportunity for us to take a step back and be like, man, am I doing the same thing? Am I so wrapped up in my little world that I'm forgetting to love my spouse? So, that, so that's good, but it, it can go to an unhealthy level, a dysfunctional level, when we put all of our eggs in that one basket. And we, all, we put all of our eggs and say, that if only my spouse shows me this or gives me that or does this for me, then I'll be, my life will be fulfilled and I won't have any issues or problems. And that's where it gets unhealthy. It's unhealthy because, again, our spouses aren't called to be the saviors of our lives. Only the Lord fulfills that role. And so can we relate? So, so maybe just pause and, and just take a step back and, and see Leah's struggles and see if they might be your own. Now here's one of the cool things. In Leah's dysfunction and her seeing this and then getting her eyes on the Lord and going back to dysfunction again, we still see the Lord's grace on her life. We still see the Lord working his plan of redemption because, again, Leah will have six, six boys and one girl, Dinah, 
But out of those two kids, out of those two boys, two, two, two lines come from Leah. The first line is the priestly line, Levi. The Levi. So her grandson, son, sons that are going to come will be Moses, will be Aaron. The second one we see line is the royal line that comes from Judah. And who do we get from Judah? We get King David. And who comes from King David? His lineage, his legacy later on, Jesus Christ. And so here we see the grace of God on Leah's life. This outcast, one that's marginalized, the priestly line, the royal line, the Messiah comes through Leah. What an incredible gift of grace. Next we see Rachel. We see Rachel in, in, in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's answer, anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now what Jacob said was right. That's a good answer. But the heart behind it was wrong. In fact, this is actually a jab that, that Jacob is, is, is saying to Rachel. Because what he's saying is, hey, the problem's not me. Just look over there, Leah, and all the little kids that are running around over there. The problem's not me. The problem is you. In verse 3, she says, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And what do we do? We look at this and go, oh boy, not again. And we say, yep, again. We saw this with Sarah and Abraham. And again, this is common practice in the ancient Near East. If a wife couldn't have kids, couldn't bear kids, she would give her, Sarah, or give her servant as a surrogate to hopefully that they would bear children. And then she would adopt the children and be credited to the, the servant's master, in this case, Rachel. And we see that Rachel gives Jacob, Bilhah, twice. And she has two boys, Dan and Naphtali. And then all of a sudden, we also see that there was a period where Leah couldn't have kids. So she sees that all of a sudden, now Rachel's servant girl is having kids. So she says that and she goes, she gives her servant to Jacob, Zilpah, and she has two boys, Gad and Asher. So this is just like major baby war dysfunction going on in this family. But back to Rachel, what's her functional savior? It's not, it's children. She needs to have children so her life will be validated. So she can be validated as a, as a wife. And not only that, it goes even deeper. She's getting outdone by her sister in the kid department. Like at this point in the story, it's four nothing. Four children, four boys for Leah, zero for Rachel. All her life, Rachel has been the one that has dominated Leah because of her looks, because of her beauty. Society lifted her up and, they, and, and, and pushed Leah down. Now it's flipped. Leah is outperforming her in the, in, the, in the most important area. One summed it up like this. How often do we, out of a deep sense of insecurity, start to look around and compare ourselves to other people in order to find our worth or identity? Do you ever do that? Have you ever done that? You start to compare yourself. What's the best way to feel good about yourself? Well, find someone else you're better than. That's the, that's the best way to feel good about yourself. And this is what Rachel's doing. Again, Rachel always was in competition with her sister and she always dominated. Now Leah is outperforming Rachel in, child, in childbearing. How about this? Does that, does that describe anyone in here that has these tensions that, that looks as functional saviors to others to compare yourself so you can feel, make yourself feel better? Maybe it is. Well, I don't have any children like they have. You know, they're getting blessed with all the families, all the kids. They have that house. They make that money. 
And again, all those things are good things. Desire to have children, desire to have a good job, the desire to have a nice home. That, those are all good things and good gifts from God. But again, they're not ultimate things. And so what we're seeing here is you guys are, are you guys seeing the pattern that's being presented in these stories in, in Jacob and Rachel and Leah? This pattern of chasing after these functional saviors and not finding fulfillment in them when they do produce, but then also seeing God's grace and him coming in and working the story of redemption and grace in our lives because we see God give grace to Rachel in verse 24 of chapter 30. It said, then God remembered Rachel. That word remember doesn't mean he forgot him. It's like, this is God saying, now it's perfect timing. Now it's time for me to act on Rachel's behalf. And God's listening to her. She turned to the Lord. And the Lord opened up her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Saying, may the Lord add to me another son. We know later on, and actually in Genesis 35, she'll give uh, birth to the, to the 12th son, the 12th son, Benjamin. So what do we have here in this story? Well, we got a, we got a mess, right? We got a family that's just a, that's just a mess. We have a bunch of insecure people vying with each other and grasping after anything but God to find their hope, to find their security, to find their identity, to find their fulfillment. We see it in Laban. Laban wanted power and control. We see it in Jacob. He was looking at his beautiful wife to find fulfillment. We see in Leah, she was looking for a husband's love. We see it in Rachel, she was looking to children in order to outdo her sister. We see that. But in the midst of all this dysfunction, the overarching theme that we should cling to is we see the Lord's grace. We see His redemption. We see Him working out His plan of redemption. Again, this is the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is the beginning of, of those numbers that are going to grow like the sand of the seashore. And that's going to bring us the serpent crusher that we've been waiting for in Genesis chapter 3. It is through this line, in particular Judah, that we will see Jesus come. And we just celebrated his life, death, and resurrection last year. So through all these crazy times, through all this dysfunction, through all this rebellion, through all this sin, we still see God bring beauty from ashes. And that's what the gospel is. It's what the God of grace does. I don't know about for you, but this is, this is really timely for me. Because it, it, it helped me this week really see what are some of my functional saviors. What am I looking to rather than the Lord? And how the Lord has been gracious. You know, usually after um, the, uh, Easter, we, we, we as, as ministers and pastors, we can kind of go into the tank a little bit. Because Easter, we have this pinnacle. I mean, we have our, the greatest gathering, the most people come in here. Right? And all of a sudden, our identity, our fulfillment, it's like, yeah, everything is going great. Look at all these people. You know, I mean, I said 350 plus people here last week. And then the next couple of weeks, you know, it kind of, everyone gets back in their routines and, and we can kind of keep our identity. It's like butts in the seats is where I can find my fulfillment and identity. And the Lord's saying, get your eyes off of the people, Aaron, and get your eyes on me. I'm doing the work here. You be faithful and doing what I've called you to. But keep your eyes on me. I'm the only one that's going to bring you fulfillment. It doesn't matter if, they're, if you're ministering to uh, 500 people, 1,000 people, or one person. Keep your eyes on me. I'm going to fulfill that need. And we see the Lord is working out his plan of redemption. Every Sunday, he has been faithful 
to the crossing over the last nine years. And we get to see it this morning with the baptism. Where the Lord takes a young man who is like all of us, rebelling from the Lord, chasing after our functional saviors. By God's grace, he interrupts his life, just as like he's done with my life and your life, where we see our need for a Savior. The gospel comes in, we repent of our sin. We look to Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. We believe in him, and we're saved. And that's what we're going to celebrate today. And that's what these stories help us celebrate. It helps us get our eyes off ourselves and our functional Savior and get our eyes on the true Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories. Lord, we see ourselves in these stories, chasing after things that we think in our flesh are going to bring us, again, identity, fulfillment, joy. And all these things, a lot of these things are good things, but they're not the ultimate things. The ultimate thing is keeping our eyes fixed on the one true God, the Savior of the world, the one in whom there is joy and there are pleasures forevermore in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we take a step back and we hear from your word and we look at these stories, may we be reminded of that that you are the true king, the true one that gives us fulfillment and joy, and that you are working in all of our circumstances. You're working out, even when we rebel, all things together for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.